Good morning, City Light Church. Good morning. It's good to see your faces. Um, I'm Mo. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, it's been an incredible week because, um, man, it's, it was a week of new beginnings, uh, of new starts. School is finally in the swing of things, and uh, I dropped my kids off for the first time, some of them for the first time uh, at school, and so that was an interesting, hard experience. And then we have a bunch of college students in the room, and we're the first hour or the hour before as well, um, starting their first time in this journey to not be under their parents' household and not under their watchful eye, and so they get to begin their adulthood. And so, man, it's been a great week of first starts and new starts, and some of us um, may not fit in that category. Maybe this week you started a new Netflix series, and so praise God for that. Uh, That's good. Amen. Uh, (laughs) But with all this, it's kind of fitting. So we're starting a new series this week. So today, it's a four-part series on our core values. So our core values is what makes us the family that we are. Like this, the core value sets the tone for how we think, how we function as the City Light family. And so this is also the grid by which we look through uh, in order to make decisions as a church family as well. And so without these core values, what we'll find is, is that we might do a lot of movement and a lot of stuff, but we might not actually make a lot of progress. And so we want to be a church that makes progress, that, that makes progress for Jesus. And then also one other thing, we have four other churches other than this one underneath the banner of City Light, and all four of those also churches also have these four core values. And so it unites us as a family of churches. And so our family's core values are down, up, in and out. Okay, we've all done elementary school maybe, and so we know that those are directions. However, those directions have meaning behind them, and today we'll talk about the down, but first let me briefly describe the other three. Up is formation. Uh, You see, the good news of the gospel is that we are not only saved by Jesus' grace, but we're also uh, gently by God conformed into the image of Jesus. Romans 8.29 says it this way, that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so like with any other relationship, the more time you spend with a person, the more you start to take on some of that person's personality. And so that's, that's up. That's formation into the image of Jesus. Uh, Then there's in, which is family. Uh, That's something that you'll hear us talk about a lot around here, that we're not an organization to affiliate with, but actually we're a family to belong to. Uh, We're a part of God's family, committed to loving one another, serving one another. And and not only that, this family is an international, multi-ethnic family. It's a family that consists of every tribe, tongue, and nation in the family of Jesus. And so that's what we are. We are family. And, And then the final one is out. Out is our mission. And so Jesus said to to the disciples, just as the Father has sent me, so I also send you. And so we're not just a family that gathers on Sunday, but we're a family that scatters throughout the week, meaning we're a family on mission to proclaim the name of Jesus and, and the praise to his glory. And so that up, in, and out are actually responses to this this one core value of down. It's the core value of values for City Light Church, but it's also the core value for every single person who would name the name of Jesus as their Lord and Savior alone. And that down is the gospel. The gospel which is found throughout the entire Bible, the message that God's extravagant love came down to save sinful man. That's what down is. But to give a fuller definition of that, I want to invite you, if you have one, digital or otherwise, open your Bible to Romans chapter 3. Uh, We're going to pick it up actually in verse 20 and work our way down to verse 31. But before I I dive right into that, I want to share a story that I recently heard. 
There's a guy named John who was arrested a little bit ago. And um, when he came, went to court, they announced what his charges were. And his charges consisted of uh, theft, first-degree murder, rape, and perjury. Uh, the sentence for John that he was actually facing, to put in perspective, was 12 months of jail for theft, one to five years for perjury, 10 years for rape, and life for murder. So basically, this was his judgment. This is what his punishment would be for his deeds. Now, what happened next after they cited his charges, they usually ask you, what is your plea? And it was shocking to me because John, what his plea was, he stood up and said, guilty. He, he confessed right out the gate, said, I am guilty. I am deserving of the punishments that await me. I have led a pattern life that has consistently broken the law, and I am deserving of the punishment. And so after a while, the, the, the court proceedings went on, and the judge went back into his room and deliberated for a while. And as he deliberated, he finally came back out, and he looked at John, and he said, John, you're innocent. Now, I don't know about you, but my heart wants to scream out loud. I want to be angry. I, I, I don't want to see a guilty man get off scot-free. I want justice. I want him to get what he deserves, don't you? When you hear that story, don't, isn't that what you would want is for him to get what he deserved? As humans, we're a people of justice, am I right? We, we desire justice, and, we, and we, we, when we see that something doesn't play out the way it ought to in justice, we feel enraged in our hearts. Now, the only time we don't feel that way is when it has to do with us. When it's got to do with me, I don't necessarily respond that way. Truth is, John's story, if you're a follower of Jesus, is your story. You're, you, now, 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 just bear with me for a minute. Maybe you haven't, maybe you're sitting there thinking, I, I haven't done those bad things. I haven't gone to that extent. I haven't done as heinous of things as John has. And maybe you haven't. Maybe your sin, maybe your guilt hasn't been ever present like his and so obviously evil and sinful. But I will press in a little bit and say that, yes, you still have sinned against a holy God. You have broken his righteous law. You have been disrespectful. You have committed clear and intentional sin against a loving God. And maybe it's not sin in the same way, but guilty nonetheless for sin. You deserve his eternal punishment. I deserve his eternal punishment. And yet, for some reason, we're in the room still breathing. We're in the room and still continuing in our sin, and yet he hasn't snuffed the life out of us like we deserve. Now, if we were to talk about John's judge, and he was here in Lincoln, what would we say about him? If he took a person who was clearly guilty and let him off and said, you're innocent, well, I don't know about you, but I would say, no, he's a terrible judge. I wouldn't want him to have his job anymore. I would want it revoked because he's not just. Same thing with God. If he doesn't punish sin, then he's not just. For those of us who have trusted Jesus and his grace, we will spend eternity with him. But the question, the reason being is because he's justified us. He's pronounced us innocent, but, but it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem just for him to let those people who don't deserve it to get to be with him. 
So then the question is, is God not fair? Is he not just for letting the murderer, the adulterer, the rapist, the the religious, the prideful, the liar, the embezzler, the addicted, the judgmental, the rebellious into his presence? Is he not just for letting us be with him? How can he justify people who have sinned against him in such sinful acts and think in such sinful ways and still be a just God? They seem to contradict themselves a little bit. And, and I would tell you, the price needs to be paid. Justice needs to be served for the wrongs that have committed in your life and my life. The holiness of God requires that there be a payment for sin. And so how can God be the just and justify a man, or anyone for that matter, that has broken his law and continue to do so time and time again? So my first point this morning is he is the just and the justifier. Let's read John, uh, Romans three twenty through 26. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so when we look at the, the, the book of Romans, essentially what it is, it's, it's that gospel message, but pulled out in a book form. It's explained in great detail the implications and the application of the good news, of the gospel. And so that's what Paul's doing. And, and this particular section is actually one of the primary sections by which he really expounds upon, unpacks the gospel message. So, so up until this point, from chapter 1 of this book until chapter 3, verse 20, it, it basically tells us that all of humanity has sinned and are held accountable to God for their sin. There's no actual, any excuse for anyone. Romans 1, 18, 19 says that God's wrath is revealed against all because God has revealed himself to all people. Our default position before God is guilty for our sin. So verse 20 basically concludes that whole section and and, and that thought process by saying that basically no human being can stand before God in right standing as innocent by obeying God's law. The law being that God's standard of holiness and righteousness, which is found in the Old Testament, that law, it, it just simply shows us that we're sinful before a holy God. Meaning, righteousness before God does not come from being a good moral person. In fact, what this is saying, there are no good moral people. That's the bad news. That's the bad news of the gospel. There there are no good people where we all have sinned and continue to sin against a holy and loving God, and we are spiritually bankrupt. We're broke. We have nothing to bring. So then how can God declare us righteous? How can anyone be made right with God? And I think Paul seeks to answer those questions in the verses that follow this verse 20. In verse 20 and 21, it says, justifying sinful humanity has been a part of God's plan all along. Meaning, he didn't look from eternity past and say, oh no, they're sinning, I need to come up with a new plan. 
No, what he says is, is that from the beginning, it states that righteousness or right standing before God comes apart from the observance of the law, meaning it's always been that it's not by observance of the law, but by faith. So sometimes when we look at the Old Testament, though, when we're reading that, if we're honest, we read Genesis to, through Malachi, usually when we look at that, we say, okay, those people got salvation through obeying the law and doing sacrifices, Well, the only problem with that is the Bible, and the Bible actually doesn't say that. The Old Testament saints were not saved by obeying the law. In fact, our passage here says that the law and the prophets, uh, being the Old Testament, bore witness to this. What did it bore, bore witness to? It bore witness to the fact that salvation has always been about faith alone, by grace alone, through Jesus Christ, to anyone who believes. So it wasn't following rules and regulations for God. In fact, Genesis 12, for instance, it says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what he's saying is he had to have faith in the coming Messiah, in Jesus coming, in order to be counted as righteous. Genesis 3 is the first gospel promise that God would send his son to send a son to to crush the head of a serpent. The promise goes all the way back to there. Our entire Bible points to that very reality, that sinful man is in desperate need of a perfect Savior. Not faith in our works, but faith in Jesus' works. In verse 23, it actually reiterates that point. He explains that all have sinned and fall short of God's perfect standard. Now, typically, if we're honest, this verse is quoted as, all have fallen short of the glory of God, meaning all of our sin passed, that's where we fall short. But as a Christian, once we're justified, we don't sin anymore. Well, we know that's the problem because all of us have done that, right? So look at the word there. The word in that verse 23 is fall. It's present tense. What it's getting at is that all people at all times have, do, and will fall short of God's perfect standard. And there's only one way, one option available to make us right with God. Verse 24 tells us that that option is Jesus. All have sinned, and all do continually sin. However, the one way to be justified, to be counted as not guilty, to be counted as innocent, is through Jesus. You see, God isn't only just, but he's also the justifier. And this justification that he's talking about here, to be justified before God, is a gift. God's gift of grace through Jesus' payment for sin. So when I say it's a gift of grace, that means it's not merited, it's, it's not try harder, it's not do gooder, be better, be a better person. It's not God looking off in the future reality, okay, so who's going to be a good enough person and then I'll give him grace. No, you can't earn it, you can't buy it, you can't be good enough for it. It's the favor of God without any strings attached and the favor that comes only through his son and his redemption on the cross. So then what's redemption then? What, what redemption is, is a term used for slaves in Jesus' time, actually. When they were purchased out of slavery or, or an indentured or debted servant, if, if his debt was paid, he was out of that bondage. Guess what? We, apart from Jesus, are slaves. That's our status. We are slaves to our sin. We can't help but to sin. But praise be to God that he would send Jesus, that we would be free from the bondage of slave and sin. We would no longer be slaves if we put our faith and our trust in the finished work of Jesus, his payment on the cross. That's what the propitiation is, the payment. So what we get from his death, burial, and resurrection is this new life. 
A new life free from the punishment of sin. Now, not free from necessarily the presence of sin right here and right now, but we are free of the bondage of the sin in our life. We're free. From the hold of sin in our life, we are free. We have been purchased out of slavery into a right position with God. God did have to punish sin. He had to punish the sin of yours and mine because he takes it very seriously. He's a holy and good and just God. But he did that on Jesus. He punished it on Jesus. In verse 26, it says that God in his forbearance or delay, he passed over or withheld punishment for the appointed time. Now, now since he is just, sin had to be punished, like I said, and Jesus paid it. And that appointed time that it's referring to there in verse 26, that was when he sent his son Jesus to die. He sent his son Jesus to live the perfect life. He sent his son Jesus to live a life that upholds his law perfectly. He sent him so he can live a life that doesn't fall short of the glory of God, but upholds the glory of God perfectly with his life. And that was completely and utterly pleasing to God. And he sent that son to take our punishment, take our place, so that we might have Jesus' right standing before God. That's what Jesus did when he died on the cross and rose to new life. That's what our redemption is, is that Jesus took the punishment that we deserve. And we can be justified by faith in him or, or trusting in that perfect payment, the propitiation. There's no distinction. We just established it. All are sinful. All have fallen short of the glory of God and all deserve punishment. But God made a way that we might receive mercy and receive grace because Jesus took our place. We are John from that story earlier. We are the guilty. But because of Jesus, the judge, God might stand before us and say, you are innocent. You get off scot-free. Now, why did he do that? Verse 26 says it this way, so that God can remain the just and the justifier of those who place their faith in Jesus. My first point is, he is the just and the justifier. Now, we have to ask the question now, as he continues on, so now that we're saved by faith alone through God's grace, what do we do with the law? Do, do, we, do we just do away with the law? Say, hey, it's gone and no longer matters anymore? Uh, do we obey the law? What's the purpose of the law? Do we need to follow God's law since we're saved by grace through faith alone? Well, I'm glad you asked. My second point is faith upholds the law. We're going to pick it up in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith? Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So the first thing that Paul points out to is that none of us can boast. What that means is at the foot of the cross, there's a level ground. There is no boasting in how much you or I might follow the law. In fact, the only thing that we can do is have joy and excitement that Jesus upheld the law perfectly for you and for me. It's like getting this, the most precious gift ever, which Jesus is, and trying to get excited about it because I obtained it. I grabbed it for myself. 
Well, no, that, that's not the way that works. If you're given a gift, the person that you give attention to, that you praise, that you find joy is, is the gift giver. God is that gift giver. He's the one that took what was precious to him and gave it away so that he might be precious to us. That's what God did. And so then what do we do with this law then? Well, we obey it. Okay, wait a minute. I just said that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone. Why would we have to obey it? Why wouldn't we just continue on with our mosey way and live our life the way we have? Well, here's what I would argue. In order to understand the immensity and the beauty of God's grace, you have to understand the depth of God's law. Galatians 3, 24 through 25 says it this way. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. The law prior to knowing Jesus showed us the depth of our sin and the holiness of God so that we can see the beauty of God's grace. So to understand grace is to actually think very highly of God's law. If you don't have a high perspective of God's law, or you think that you can perfectly obey God's law, then you probably have a low view of his grace because you don't really need grace. But if you have a high view of God's law, then, then you're probably going to have a high view of his grace because you know that you can't perfectly obey his law and that Jesus did that for you. That's what grace is. That's how we see it from its grandeur, from its beauty, is by seeing God's law in perspective of the grace that he gave us. In this life, we cannot obtain perfect holiness, but we definitely can be pursuing holiness, and we should. Now, City Light, family, let me talk to you. We are a grace-driven church. Like, we will, we will preach and talk grace, 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 grace until you can't tolerate hearing about grace anymore. I promise you that. And we will give grace upon grace upon grace upon grace until you can't handle getting any more grace from us. However, do not confuse that as not taking the law seriously. Don't confuse it as a low view of God's law, but actually a very high one because we understand how much we need his grace. Amen? The law shows us how desperately we need the grace and how beautiful that grace is. And it reveals Jesus so much more purely, so much more beautiful to us when we understand how deep that law goes. Grace sees the law as grander than any rule falling ever would. Now verse 31 says that faith doesn't overthrow the law but upholds it. And so, like I said before, I'm convinced that if, if we understand the law, if we see the beauty of God's grace... If we've placed our faith in Jesus and understand that, then actually it'll compel us to obey the law. Interestingly enough, I think the grace, the love of Christ, compels us to walk with Christ, to follow Christ, to obey him, not to work for his love and his affection, but out of gratitude and love for him. 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 says that Christ's love compels us to not live for ourselves, but to live for him. I think some of us really like or want cheap grace. Here's the problem with cheap grace. It doesn't transform your life. It doesn't change you. It doesn't make you more like Jesus. In fact, it doesn't even change how you do relationships, how you deal with your finances, how you parent. It has no effect on your life if it's cheap grace. God's grace is free, but it's costly. It costs us our life. It's not cheap at all, but it's extremely, utterly, and 
no question about it, worth it. It's worth everything. And, and see, we also struggle with upholding the law and following Jesus because we have a weird thinking where we say, well, if I can't perfectly follow the law, then why try it all? What's, what's, the, what's the point? Won't God just look at my, my deeds and, and how I'm trying and just say, hey, that's not good enough. Put it away. I'm ex- disposing of it of that. Well, the answer to that question is no. That's not at all how God would view your work, your, your obedience to his law. Let me give you an example. I have a little son. He's, he's about to be four years old. He uh, just went to preschool for his first two days of school this week, and it was amazing. He's beautiful. Love that dude. I love my other kids, too. Sorry, Trey. But Uriah is he, he's beautiful. Anyway, so Uriah, <laughs> from an early age, uh, we try to give our kids their own age-appropriate responsibilities. And so the one that we have in our home right now is making your bed. And it takes a long time for them to get that. But we're like, okay, Every other day or so, we'll just send them upstairs, go make their bed. Now, something that you don't know about me that I'm going to let you in on a little bit of a secret. When I was in college, I went to get my CNA so I can make money. So that's a certified nursing assistant. I got my little license there. Well, in the training to be a CNA, they teach you how to make a good bed. Like, I mean, near perfect. Ask my wife. She knows that I can make a good bed, okay? Like, you might have a skill set. You can hack computers, or you might be able to do some nunchuck skills, but I can make a bed, all right? That's, that's my skill set right there. And, and I know Austin can probably play seven instruments and sing like John Mayer, but I know he can't make a bed like me, all right? Like, that's, that's my thing. Anyway, anyway, so Uriah, after I tell him, go make your bed, he goes upstairs, and he makes his bed, and then he comes down inevitably and says, Daddy, Daddy, look at my bed that I made. And I'm like, okay, buddy. And, and so we go upstairs, and, and he doesn't come to me because he thinks he can gain my love from it. He comes because he knows that his dad loves him, cares for him, is going to be completely and utterly proud of him, right? Now, you and I both know that that bed is not even close to the standard of what I would do, right? Like, not even, I mean, he's four, so he can't, I mean, barely fold a t-shirt, let alone his bed. But... When I get up there, I look at his bed, and I look at Uriah, and I smile, and I say, buddy, I love you. I'm proud of you. You've done a great job. Good work. Now, he didn't do it perfectly, but he did do it purely. And I think some of us in the room don't see God in that way. And and I would put me in that same category. I don't always see God in that way. I see this scenario going very differently before God because what I see him doing is coming in, taking the blanket off, throwing it on the floor, taking the sheet off and throwing it on the floor and saying, hey, try harder, do gooder, do it again because that wasn't right and walking out the door. Can I tell you something? That's not the way he is at all. That's not the God that we serve. He, he's a loving and grace-filled Father who, who looks on you in your grace-driven effort toward him and smiles and says, I'm proud of you. I'm your dad. I love you so much. And yes, he graciously corrects us and, and pushes us toward being more like Jesus, which is also a part of his grace, though. That's a part of his love. Romans 8.15 says this about those who place their faith in Jesus. says, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You see that? 
Because of this grace, through faith, we are adopted children of the living God. We can call him Abba. In the original language, when you look up the word Abba, it means daddy. Now, some of us may not have had a good father. Some of us may have had a great dad. But I want to tell you, God, he is the perfect dad. He loves you. He's affectionate towards you. He desires to be with you. He is proud of you. And he wants what's best for you. That's what his law is, actually. His law is his best for his kids. So should we obey God's law? Absolutely, yes. Yes, we should obey God's law. Because our faith compels us to do so. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it beautiful that God would love us so much that he would slowly work on our hearts so that we might be transformed from being an orphan child to resembling his actual son? Isn't that love? It's beautiful. Look up here. If you're a son or daughter of the living God, that's the good news. The good news is that if you uphold his law the best you can, grace-driven effort, what we end up doing is we remember what Jesus did. He perfectly upheld the law in our stead. And we're reminded that the law shows us how good and holy God is and shows how we fall short of that law. But yet the the thing that should be our response, the, the heart response in the midst of all of that is just to see the beauty of the cross, the beauty of God's grace, God's mercy of adopting us into his family and making us more like his son Jesus. That's the good news for you. And for the person in the room who has yet to place their faith in Jesus Have you been just trying really hard to be good, to try to please God in that way? Or or maybe maybe you've just been rebellious and and never tried to obey any rules. Well, get this. The gospel is not an invitation to continue to try to be better, and it's not an invitation to start following some rules. Actually, it's an invitation for a desperately sinful person to fall in love with a loving Savior. That's the invitation of the gospel. It's not a try harder, do better. It's an invitation into an eternal, intimate, all-loving, all-grace-filled love relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what the gospel is. He wants you to be in his family. He's pursued you. He's pursuing you right now in the gospel. So please, 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 if you hear anything from this message, is that he loves you and wants to be in a relationship with you. Not to do his bidding and do good works, but to be a part of his family. Amen? So City Light... That's down. The gospel that we have been saved by grace through faith in Jesus, and it may seem like a weird core value for a church, right? A lot of times we just want to assume the gospel, but may it never be here. May we never be a people, a family who assumes the greatest news known to man that has been delivered to us and gifted to us. In God's justice, he must punish sin, but out of his great love and his grace, he justifies us as a gift through faith in Jesus Christ. It's not just a a value. It is everything. It's the thing that matters the most. Let's pray.